The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. It says, uh, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from human origin? Answer me. They discussed it amongst themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word and, and perfect it in our hearts, that we would recognize the sovereign authority of Jesus over all things. And so, Father, would we glorify him at this time. And it's in his name that we ask. Amen. Having a 350-pound lineman in your face uh, can be quite intimidating. Uh, and that was uh, uh, the situation that I found myself in on the first night that I was uh, on rounds as a resident advisor back in college. Uh, believe it or not, but uh, Mankato, the college down in Mankato, is a dry campus. You wouldn't necessarily know that uh, if you were a, uh, a resident advisor on a freshman floor uh, there at the college. It means that alcohol is not permitted anywhere on campus, yet here I was walking the halls of Gage Tower B, which, which unfortunately no longer exists with my uh, duty partner, and, and we, we came across this room that was rather loud, and that's usually not a good sign that, that, that wholesome things are happening in there. And so we, we knocked on the door, and um, it took them about a minute or two in order to open up the door because we could hear all sorts of clanging and, and banging around and, and drawers being closed and refrigerators getting, uh, getting shut rather quickly. And finally, they opened the door. And as I was telling them, hey, look, you guys are just being a little too loud. You need to be quiet. I look over, and there is a, a bottle of vodka that is sitting on their, their desk. It is the one bottle that they forgot to hide. And that was all that, that my partner and I needed at that point. And so I pointed it out, and I told them that if they had any other alcohol containers in the room, that they needed to take them all out and put them in the center of the room. And then after they're put in the center, we're going to pack them up, we're going to go over to the kitchen, and you are going to dump them out one after another. And it was at that point that, uh, that you would have thought that I was at the North Country bottle shop with the amount of stuff that was coming out of drawers and out of the fridge and out of all these places. And after getting all their names and, and having them ready to do this, this guy comes forward. And I say guy, but he was more like a mythological monster. He was huge. He wasn't tall, but he was, he was huge. This guy would pound me like a pancake with one slug. And he gets right in my face and he says, who do you think you are? That's the edited version. 
Uh, and uh, it turns out that he was actually on the football team. And uh, so not only was this going to cost him a lot of money since he funded this little shindig, but it was also going to be a disciplinary note against him uh, as far as the, the, the football team goes. So he was a little upset with me, and this was only August. The school year had only just begun. But that sentiment that he blasted with me is, is nothing less than the cultural ethos of our day. Uh, nobody likes anybody telling them, them what to do, uh, especially if it involves challenging lifestyle, uh, money, or, uh, or morality. And every one of us at, at some point has said, maybe in one way or another, who do you think you are? Our contemporary culture, I believe, is the most anti-authoritative, self-autonomous culture ever in recorded history. We live in a time when all forms of organized society or whatever it is are rejected as authoritative. The family, the church, and so many other things are being viewed as outdated uh, forms of oppression against the individual right to govern themselves. It is so extensive now that we have even rebelled against the authority of nature. Your biology, according to our culture, no longer has any say in who you are. It's all about subjective feelings. It may be covered in being your authentic self or self-realization, but what it comes down to is a rebellion against an external force, an external authority, and it comes with a sinful desire for self-rule. We are the only ones who make rules for ourselves. No one can tell us otherwise. We have become beyond what poet uh, Ernest uh, Hensley wrote in his poem Invictus when he wrote this. He said, uh, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And in the last stanza, it says, it, not, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Is that not the cry of our culture? But our culture has gone even beyond this. Because we would look at this and say, I don't even think whatever gods may be, because when they look in the mirror, they say, I thank me for being who I am. We are the source of independence and spirit and strength. And the world must bow down to our greatness and affirm us. It has infected the church as well. We view the church as being very helpful in, in navigating life. But how many of us are committed to the idea that the church and its teachings are authoritative in our lives? How many of us are reading our Bibles not to hear the, the clear commands of Christ and obey them and see them as good for our lives, but rather as helpful suggestions and affirmations of who we are so we can live our best life now. You see, from the moment that Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have been saying to others, and more importantly to God, 
Who do you think you are? It's precisely what Mark was getting at here when he takes up this passage that we have before us. When Jesus is confronted by the leadership of the temple, they're essentially asking him, who do you think you are doing these kind of things that you are doing? And his answer is crucially important as we continue to work through what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. And there's two ways that we ought to, that ought to help us aid. And the first is, is that we need to recognize the authority of Jesus. We have to recognize his authority. This would have been Tuesday of Holy Week uh, when Jesus and his disciples would come back to Jerusalem and go to the temple. Two days prior, he had made this grand triumphant entrance uh, on the back of a donkey, which was, uh, which was uh, uh, completely clear to everyone around him that he was saying that he fulfills Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, in which the king, the Messiah of, of Israel, would come uh, riding on a donkey into, uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, the people latched on to this. They welcomed him royally the day before. So Monday of Holy Week, uh, the text that we looked at last week, Jesus had em- entered the temple only to find out that the court of Gentiles was more like a shopping mall than it was a place of worship. And so Jesus overturned the tables and, and reinstated the area that the, that the world is welcome to worship God. And now here we are back in the temple again, and it appears that Jesus now needs to answer for these things that he did against the leadership. Look with me in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, he was just walking in the door, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, it's important for us to realize that these people that are confronting Jesus here, these aren't your average Joe. These aren't just regular community members. Uh, Mark mentions three groups that, that represent here. He mentions the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These were the three groups that would have made up what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have been considered like the Supreme Court of, of Israel at this time. It was made up of 71 individuals from all three of these groups, and they enjoyed enormous freedom to uh, religiously uh, govern the things that, uh, that happened among the people of Jerusalem and throughout Israel at that, at that time. And so these people that were coming were representing the Sanhedrin, and more than likely they were not here because they were genuinely interested in who Jesus was and what he was all about. More than anything, they were coming to him and questioning him about these things in order to gather evidence to finally execute him, finally put him away. When they're saying by what authority, they're Their issue isn't what Jesus did, although that was rather embarrassing to them. But it's rather about his right to do what he did. They know that there's a history here of Jesus uh, maybe uh, getting out of his lane here and exercising authority that they didn't think that he was supposed to have. Back in chapter 1 of Mark, when Jesus began his his public ministry, uh, there were people that had heard what he was doing and teaching they had seen what he was doing. 
in chapter one, they, they even mark that this man is teaching and he has authority. They, they saw his, they heard his teaching, but they also saw him driving out demons and healing people. And if you don't have authority to do that, wow. Then in chapter two, Jesus, for, uh, Jesus was in that situation where he was in the, the room of the house and people were coming and gathering around him. And there was not enough room for this lame man who was only on a mat as his friends brought him. They end up bringing him down through the roof. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And the chief priests see this as, as blasphemous. And he says, hey, look, uh, if, if, uh, what's easier, to say get up and walk or to say your sins are forgiven? Well, he shows them, this is how I have authority. Get up and walk. So, the, so Jesus here then, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, tipping tables over is nothing new to their understanding of how Jesus here is, is nothing but a rebel. That is the central issue here, is authority. And to them, he's blaspheming. It's a charge that they can finally put him to death. It's a typical scheme of top, toxic people who have a, a perceived uh, authority amongst themselves and they will do whatever they can do to try to trap you into saying something or doing something so that they can gather evidence in order to prosecute you. They may even act like your friend from time to time, but they are not. Their plan is to destroy you. And Jesus doesn't fall for this. He employs what's called the, the Socratic method uh, in, uh, in, in logic and philosophy by answering a question with a question. However, we can, we can uh, think that Jesus uses his, his infinite wisdom here just to, to trip them up into a logical box, but he isn't. Rather, in his line of questioning here, Jesus is, in fact, forcing them to come to grips with exactly who he is. And who sent him and who gives him authority for these things so that they will turn from their wickedness and follow him. Look in verse 29. Jesus says, I will ask you one question, then answer me. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from human origin? Answer me. And so the immediate question as readers that we have to ask is what in the world does John's baptism and John's ministry as a whole have to do with, uh, with Jesus here? And the answer is everything. A decision for John is a decision about Jesus. When John appeared in the wilderness, he was breaking four Hundred years of silence from God. Prior to John the Baptist, there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. And all of a sudden, this guy shows up in the wilderness. And his message was that he was fulfilling Malachi chapter 1 and Isaiah 40. In Malachi 3, uh, he sa it says, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord will seek, uh, you seek, will suddenly come to, the, to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming, says the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. John was claiming that he was this messenger. And 
uh, that messenger he vocally announced is exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40. When it says, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight a highway for our God in the desert. And now in John chapter 1, we see the crux of the question that Jesus is asking the religious leaders. Notice what John chapter 1 says. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see, uh, the Spirit descending and resting on him, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. So now when Jesus says to them, you know, was John's baptism from heaven or, or was it uh, of human origin? He's not trying to evade the question here. He's actually answering the question. Was John right or was he wrong? If John was an error, then they'd have to tell the people that they were duped. This man, John, he actually wasn't a prophet. He was just some crazy old kook out in the wilderness that totally manipulated you. If John was correct, then these religious leaders would have to believe that Jesus is everything that he claimed to be. That he is the Son of God. That he is the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins. And so you can see the issue here now, the tension that they're, that they're uh, facing. Look in verse 31. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe me? In other words, if John truly was a prophet, if he truly was right as a prophet, then him saying, look, here is the Messiah, you have to believe him. Because he's sent from God. They'd have to admit they're wrong, that they should have listened, that they need to repent, and that they need to trust in Jesus. But if we say of human origin, they, which is sort of a derogatory term, which refers to something that is just concocted and uh, doomed to failure, they were so afraid of the crowd because everyone saw John the Baptist as genuine that this wasn't even an option. They're so afraid of losing face. They're so afraid of their power and their glory and their status and their religious prestige and their authority being taken away that their most sophisticated answer after all this deliberation is, I don't know. We don't know. They simply have to plead ignorance. And that's humiliating to them. This is the religious supreme court. And they don't know. And it's also proof that they didn't come to genuinely seek answers. They were unwilling to entertain any truth of who Jesus was. And nothing would change their mind. Their, their pride had so overtaken all of their character, 
that they refuse to see the truth that is right in front of them. And because they are unwilling now to go to either one side or the other, Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you then plainly where my authority comes from either. In other words, if they can't discern the way of God in regards to John the Baptist, then they certainly aren't wise enough to discern or believe where Jesus' authority comes from. So it all comes down to this. They are completely unwilling to admit that Jesus is Lord. And because he is Lord, they simply will not allow themselves to believe that he has authority over their lives. They are far more content to put this man to death so that their uh, consciences can be assaged than deal with the fact that they are ultimately accountable to this man. That every word, thought, and deed will be looked at and scrutinized by him. So what does that mean for you and I here in, in, in 2022? At the very least, it means that we must consider the many ways in which we're playing the part of the Sanhedrin today. Instead of trying to discredit Jesus' authority in our lives, instead, we need to do our second point today, which is we need to submit to his authority. We don't really like that word submit. But Jesus is the authority. One of the biggest plagues of modern Christianity is that uh, we, we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, and, and we, we leave it at that. We're, we're very happy uh, that Christ came to earth to live the perfect life that we couldn't. We're, uh, we're overjoyed with the fact that he went to the cross in order to cancel out our sin and take our sin on our behalf. I mean, how could we not be grateful for that? I mean, Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved upon himself so that we could be free, not just to get a clean slate, but that we were given all of the righteousness of Christ and who he is by God's grace. His... Um, his death opened up the door for healing and redemption and restoration and, and wholeness and, and, and purpose and meaning and, and life itself. And when we look at the world and we look at the, 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 the direction that the world is going and when we look at our aging bodies in, in the mirror and uh, we can feel its effects in, in our bones, when we feel the grief when we see the people that we love going through suffering or experience that grief when we lose those that we, that we love, how can Jesus' resurrection not give us a great hope that this life isn't all there is? There's far more greater things to come. It's all secured by God's grace. But here's the, the rub. Jesus is a package deal. He is not just Savior. He is Lord. And though many of us might give assent to the idea that Jesus is both Lord and Savior of our lives, we live as if he's not Lord. That term Lord means that he has absolute sovereignty. 
an absolute uh, dominion over every aspect of your life. Jesus has the right to tell you what is right and wrong. He has the right to tell us what we need to do and what we need to abstain from. He has authority and jurisdiction over how we think about the world. He has authority over our words, our actions, our relationships. He has authority over our employment. He has authority over our recreation. He has authority over our bodies and what we do to them. He has authority in our bedrooms. He has authority in how we school our children. He has authority over how we manage our time. He has authority over our political views. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he did not mean some. He is saying that he has absolute, unchallenged authority over every single atom and molecule in the entire universe. Yet how often, when Jesus gives us a clear command in his word, we think, well, I'll think about it. Or we see it as good advice. Or if it's practical, maybe I'll do it. Or we just dismiss it flippantly. Think about that. For example, when Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells us something like, do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interest, but in the interest of others. How are you doing in that? Are you living for number one? In Ephesians 4, how about this? When it says, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. How's that going? Maybe not in your mouth, but what about your mind? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, when Paul tells us to abstain from sexual immorality, does the cache or the history in your internet browser show that? How about your thought life? Your thoughts ever wander about being with someone other than your spouse? Are you engaged in explicit acts with someone that is not your spouse? When the word of Christ plainly tells us you shall not lie, are you a truth teller? Are you listening to the voice of the culture and media that wants you to believe that it is morally acceptable to slaughter children in the womb? Or that gender is only a construct that's subjective to the individual? Or that it's completely natural for, for two guys and two gals to be in a relationship? Those are just a few examples, but certainly hitting on cultural taboos. We could keep going on and on, but my guess is that the more examples that I give, uh, the more uncomfortable and perhaps angry you become. And that's precisely what this point, what this passage leads to. The authority of Jesus will 
always be a dividing line. It will always cause issues. And if we understand this correctly, Mark is making the point that every single one of us are like the Sanhedrin. Jesus is great until it places those things that we want to control out of our control. Jesus is wonderful until he tells me that I can or can't do that. Hey, I am, Jesus is my homeboy until fill in the blank happens. And it's at that point that we want to put our nose right against his. And say, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? We are always looking for ways to discredit Jesus in order to put him to death in our consciences. And we do, uh, we, we do this because when we talk about the authority of Jesus, we're ultimately talking about accountability. This is so pervasive that it even affects how we think about our theology of salvation. We'll often throw around terms like, well, I made Jesus Lord and Savior of my life. Really? Can you make Jesus anything? Isn't he already Lord and Savior? We just need to yield to it. We need to receive it. We can't make him anything. We have to give up our perceived authority, not because he's a harsh taskmaster, but because he loves us and he delights in righteousness. And he wants us to be like him. So when we put up that white flag of, of surrender, Jesus' kingdom invades our hearts and starts to get to work on all those little areas of our hearts. And we see this practically. Life works better when we don't lie to each other. Would you agree with that? Life is a whole lot more peaceful if we don't hate each other. Marriage is so much better when you're delighting in your spouse alone. The, the church is so much more peaceful when we put off pride and anger and, and gossip and slander and, 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 and division and those things. And we uh, put on compassion and kindness and, and, and meekness and humility and, and gentleness. And this doesn't mean that we don't struggle with things. Friends, we are, the rest of our lives are going to be met with struggle. But it does mean that uh, what Jesus says to us is worthy of joyfully submitting to. His ways are good. His ways are pure. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, but yet he is also gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger, and he is abounding in steadfast love. And he is, through the Holy Spirit, working in you day by day to become more like him. So give up self-sufficiently, uh, self-sufficiency. Bow the knee to Christ and his authoritative character over all of the universe. And experience life as it's meant to be. You know, having a 350-pound lineman in my face was, uh, I didn't know, I didn't weigh him. I don't know how much he weighed. I just say he was, he was, a, he, he was big. 
and scary. It was certainly frightening, but I didn't finish that story. Uh, I didn't exactly know what to do uh, at that moment because it was my first night on rounds, as I said, but the, the, uh, as an RA at Mankato, I don't know if they do this any different anywhere else, but you're always on duty with somebody else. And it, it, it's supposed to be someone of the other gender so that if there's issues, you work that out. And my, my partner, her name was, was Jen. She had been an RA for a year, so she had some bit of experience. And as this guy is right in my face, she's tiny, she steps right in between us. And she gets in his face and says, this is what you're going to do. Everyone else isn't going to be pouring out this liquor anymore. It's all going to be you. You gather it up. We're going to the kitchen. You're going to dump it out. And we're going to have, we're going to have words unless you want this to be worse than it already is. He looked at her. Okay. He goes over and he does it. Problem solved. I don't know what happened after that. And you may not always want to surrender to the authority of Christ. But he knows what's best for us. When we encounter him in all this sovereign glory, our response ought to go from, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to say or to tell me that? It ought to move from that to say, okay, Lord, regardless of the consequence, I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to follow you in faith. I know you're with me and I know that you're for me. I know that you're never going to leave me. You're never going to forsake me. So, Lord, help me to hear your voice, recognize your authority, and follow you. Let's pray.